Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear overcomers of the world, it is a phrase familiar to parents when something in the house gets broken or some chore doesn't get done. When the children are confronted and asked to take responsibility, instead they respond, not me! Bosses encounter it too. Hey, Smith, where are the figures for the new project? I asked you for them last week and I haven't seen them yet. Oh, boss, I don't have them. You must have asked someone else for those, not me. Or the wife to her husband. Honey, you said you couldn't get the yard work done today because you had to go into work, but, but Alice says that she saw you and Frank going into Mel's Tavern this afternoon. Ah, sweetie, Alice must need new glasses or something. That must have been somebody else, not me. In most cases like these, the response to not me is similarly simple. Yes, you, you are the one who broke it. You are the one I gave that job to. You are the one caught in the lie. What is often left unsaid is the sad truth that accompanies, yes, you, you know better. You know better than to pretend innocence or ignorance. You know better than to shift the blame to someone else. You know better than to lie or play games with the truth because because the stakes are higher than you pretend they are. The verses that are are our first lesson today record something that happened not long after Pentecost, so likely no more than a few months after Jesus was crucified. Peter and John had been on their way to the temple in Jerusalem to pray when, when they encountered a beggar who had been lame since birth. He asked them for money, but he got something greater instead. Peter told him, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And we are told, immediately the man's feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood up and began to walk. He entered the temple courts with them, walking, jumping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the one who used to sit begging for money at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people came running toward them in utter amazement in the area called Solomon's Colonnade. Now this was clearly a miracle. And any and every miracle of God is something worthy of praise and amazement. But there's something more to consider here. Were miracles of healing like these unheard of or uncommon? Well, in normal times, sure. But considering that Jesus had lived and worked and walked among them for more than three years, and very recently, well, no. The the people of Jerusalem should have been quite familiar with the idea that someone like this beggar might be miraculously given the ability to walk. So why were the people so filled with wonder and amazement? It was because Jesus had been crucified. 
and his lifeless body had been taken down from the cross and laid in a grave. To their minds, what they thought was the end of Jesus should also mean the end of his miracles. And that is certainly what their leaders, who had been carefully trying to wipe out any mention or memory of the preacher from Nazareth, would have encouraged everyone to think. So when two men, known to be his disciples, speak life into dead legs and raise him from lameness to leaping, just as Jesus did, it draws attention and creates astonishment and and should challenge their opinions and assumptions. And Peter takes advantage of their amazement to do just that. When he speaks to the crowd, he addresses and crushes their opinion that they had nothing to do with Christ's death, not me, and that they certainly bore no guilt before God over anything that had happened to him, not me, and that they had anything to repent of, not me, or even that there was any conflict in their hearts or between them and God, not me. Listen again then to how Peter filled again with the Holy Spirit, offers a strong and corrective, yes, you, and points them toward repentance and faith in Jesus. Acts 3, 12-20. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus that has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. This faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just like your leaders. But in this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Therefore, repent and return to have your sins wiped out, so that refreshing times may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Now, the two questions Peter asks the people are rhetorical. He doesn't really need them to tell him why they are amazed or why they are staring at him and John. He wants them to think about the answers. But most of all, he wants them to understand that what they are amazed at and wondering about, they already know. They just need to own up to it and deal with the implications and consequences of what they already know. And what they did not already know, Peter was going to tell them. They should be responsible with what they know. Trust it and act on it. And the first thing that the apostles want the people to wrestle with is a question of credit. Who is it who healed this lame man and made him walk? There, Peter and John could each properly say, not me, 
They had no power of their own to do miracles, and they had no particular claim on God's power through their own righteousness, as they knew only too well. No, the power was God's alone. And this man was healed on the basis of faith in Jesus' name. And that is what they wanted these people, and all people, to know. The name of Jesus. Not just the sounds and the syllables of it, of course, but the power and promise attached to it because of the person it was attached to. The name itself, the people knew. And many undoubtedly were even able to say that they had seen the man it belonged to. But the fact that the lame man had been healed in Jesus' name proved that it was no mere label. It was a thing of great strength and significance. Why? Because Jesus was the name of the Christ, the name of the Messiah that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers, had promised so long ago. The Nazarene carpenter crucified just weeks or months ago was no mere man. He was God's servant and son the Holy and Righteous One, and the author of life. And so his name was and is something to be called upon, praised, trusted, and worshipped, just as the man given the power to walk now called on, praised, trusted, and worshipped Christ, and just as God's people from the beginning had called on, praised, trusted, and worshipped the name. Now, it was important that no one mistake the instruments for the cause or the the conduits for the power. Peter's opening questions eliminated any thought the crowd might have that his and John's names were the important ones to know and remember. Sure, they were the ones through whom this healing happened, but everything that mattered was done in and through and by the name of Jesus. Jesus, the one who had been raised from the dead because the name of a man who has stayed a corpse would have had no power. They, they had no interest in starting the church of Peter or the church of John, only the church of Christ. Similar to the way that, that John the Baptist had said when, when Christ's ministry had begun to overtake his, he must increase, but I must decrease. This lesson is as, a, is as important today as it was when their church was first getting started. It can be tempting to, to look to some person through whom God has worked and see him or her as as more important than Jesus himself. It could be Martin Luther or John Calvin. Maybe the the charismatic or consequential pastor of one's church. It might even be one's mother or father or grandma or grandpa, especially if one begins thinking things like, well, of course I'm a Christian. Mom took me to church every Sunday when I was a kid, and, and I know she prays for me every day, even though I only make it to worship myself on a special occasions. And, of course, I know I'm going to heaven. My grandfather was one of the founding members of this congregation. Even though I never crack a Bible, and most of my personal beliefs would disappoint him, and my life would scandalize him. It is the name of Jesus, 
name of Jesus alone and this faith that comes through Jesus that matters, we can find confidence and deliverance in nothing and no one else. But of course, faith and the salvation that comes through it involves knowing more than just a name. There are truths that must be confronted, known, and trusted. And Peter is most forceful here in destroying the crowd's not-me-imagined ignorance with, yes, you, knowledge and understanding. And the first truth they must grapple with is the reality of what they have done, particularly in contrast to what God has done. Peter preached the law to convict them of sin strongly and directly because they were too comfortable with the delusion that because they were not the ones who who physically nailed Jesus to the cross or arranged for his arrest, that they were somehow guiltless. So Peter presented his case, which was really the Lord's case against them. Though the God of their fathers had glorified his servant Jesus, they handed him over to a Gentile, Pilate, and declared that they wanted nothing to do with him in Pilate's presence. Remember how the Roman governor said he found no reason to execute Jesus, but the crowd shouted anyway, crucify him? Remember how Pilate asked the people what he should do with the king of the Jews, and they said, we have no king but Caesar. They disowned the very servant God had sent to deliver them. And that was not all. The one God called holy and righteous, Jesus, they denied and rejected. But a a mere man, a murderer, Barabbas, they demanded be released to them. Pilate offered them a choice, and they chose wrong over right, the guilty over the innocent. And perhaps most incriminating, the most incriminating contrast of all, they took the life of the author of life. And not a voice from the crowd was raised to say, stop this, no, don't, we're not going to go along with this, end this, no. But the one that the leaders and the people in agreement killed, God unkilled. He raised Jesus from the dead. And of all of this, Peter and John and the other apostles were witnesses, not just of what the people had done so that they could not get away with saying, not me, but also of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The crowd gathered there that day needed to know all these things about Jesus and about themselves, but they especially needed to know what God had done about it all. As always, it is easy and tempting for us Christians today to sit in judgment on those Jews then, who as the heirs of Abraham had all the promises and prophecies of the Messiah, who as Israelites should have understood this all and acted on it, and we think, well, they should have known and done better. I would have. But that's simply not true. We are no better than anyone in those crowds that allowed or even called for their Savior to be led away to the cross. 
And like them, we know better too. And like them, we often try to shift the blame and guilt elsewhere while saying, not me, but it is us. Anytime we choose what is comfortable or convenient for us, instead of what is commanded by God, we turn our backs on Jesus. Anytime we say, the life of a disciple with its cross-bearing, it's just too difficult and distasteful for me, I'll do something else. We disown the holy and righteous one who only wants what's best for us, which is sin and unbelief, which damns. Just as the Jews Peter was addressing could not claim an exemption from God's judgment just because they were descendants of Jacob, neither can any of us escape guilt just because of who we are or our parents or grandparents were or because of what church we belong to. What every person on this planet deserves for our thoughts, words, and acts of rebellion against God's will and our rejection of His Son is death and hell. And since there is no way for any of us on our own to undo any evil we have done, we are lost and without hope of peace with God or of paradise in the end. So we need to hear Peter's words just as much as the people of Jerusalem that day needed to hear them. Because the only way to know peace or to have the promise of heaven is if God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that is exactly what he did for the Jews and for the Gentiles, for the whole world in Jesus. Neither the people nor their leaders truly understood what they were doing when Christ's crucifixion was arranged and executed. But God did. And, and he had even revealed it through his prophets. The readings from Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 that we looked at on Good Friday especially make clear what what Peter reminded the crowd of. The Scripture said the Christ would suffer. And they all played a part in that, even in their ignorance. The suffering and death of Jesus was precisely what they and every sinner most needed from God. They needed a substitute who would take our place and absorb God's punishment for all sin, suffering the death we deserve and and the separation from His Father's presence that is hell so that we would not have to die and be damned ourselves. And for this, God asks no price from us no sacrifice to prove our sincerity, no great works of devotion. In love and mercy, He makes it simple for sinners to find redemption and be restored to His presence. Therefore, repent and return to have your sins wiped out so that refreshing times may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Turn from your sins, turn to Christ. Put your faith in the name and work of Jesus, and victory over guilt and death and hell is yours. You win. 
because Jesus conquered all our enemies with his death and his resurrection on Easter morning. And what does winning look like? It looks like peace with God because your sins are all forgiven. And peace in your hearts because your guilt is all gone. You have the presence of the promise of Christ's presence with you, despite the times that you have disowned him, and the promise of paradise in his presence. And whenever life in this world has worn you out, as happens often for the children of God, living by his commands when everyone around us does the opposite, or when the constant struggle between your new nature in Christ and your old sinful nature has made you weary, God gives, Peter promises us, refreshing times. Refreshing times. Times when, when all of the cleansing, the, the peace, the hope, and the joy, and more, that everything that your soul and heart need is given to you. Refreshing times when you need them. And tomorrow in heaven, when everything will be restored and made. This faith in the name of Jesus. This is the way to life. It's for every sinner. No exceptions. Which means that it is for you. Yes, you. Peter preached... John wrote, and your parents and pastors have taught you this good news. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Know Jesus and know his peace. Call on his name and salvation and all God's blessings are yours. Believe it. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.